Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for July 2015. I am writer, hyphen critic, hyphen Goldilocks, exoplanet Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi there, I'm writer, hyphen director, hyphen fear and anger currently have the controls in my head, and I don't know what joy and sadness are, Paul Anthony Nelson, and with us this month is our very special guest. Hi, I'm Philippa Hawker, I'm film reviewer, hyphen content provider, hyphen saint supporter. Ah, Saints. Oh, you two have got a lot to talk about then. Yeah, we're, we're going to the game this afternoon. Oh, <laughs> one we can win and one we yes. won very happily last time. <laughs> it's, it's the ones we probably will win that we never do. Right. So, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll cut this out if we lose. <laughs> but anyway, enough football. to <laughs> film. Magic Mike XXL came out this month. A film that has no business at all being as great as it is, I think. Which is interesting because it's a sequel to a film that had no business being as great as it was. And I had so much fun in this film. I'm growing increasingly wary of the trend of uh, either praising or damning films based purely on their politics. But this film is so inclusive of... Uh, race and gender and age and size and everything you can mention that it, I think films like these can very easily exclude you know anyone who isn't pretty and can't you know strip and do pirouettes and so on but this film in particular makes you feel like you're you're part of it and it's just such a joy yeah I think what what I liked about it was that yeah it it, it was uh, yeah very inclusive and thoughtful but in a way that was totally in the interest of entertainment as well so you never felt that it, it, it had bit was inclusive in a in a earnest way but that it was inclusive for the sheer pleasure of it mm-hmm. and also in areas where they you could easily not have thought of it. i remember in the, in the first one the audience as all the women when who were watching the the strippers were all very cookie cutter thin blonde women whereas mm. they've just they've thought no no this isn't the way this isn't audiences, we can do this so much better yeah. and we can have fun and everyone will have more fun this way. I wasn't such a fan of the first one, but yeah. I really enjoyed this one. You oh. seen I haven't, no, I've seen, my my partner saw it and loved it. She took me to YouTube to show me the scene where Joe Manganiello is doing the, the dance to I Want It That Way in the convenience store to make the girl laugh <laughs> and that was really great. Mm. Yeah, it's it, it. the whole film is full of stuff like that and even though it feels like there are, really no stakes. They're just on a road trip mm. to go to this competition, and if they don't win, that's fine. Um, well, it's not even a competition, I don't think, isn't it? It's just a, just a it's showcase. Just a, show, of, just, just a showcase. I mean, that's yeah. another thing I loved about it was that it didn't have... The, the, the payoff was just getting there. Yeah. And and getting up on stage together for one last show. Mm. It, there was nothing to win, and I, that was such a relief, I think, too. Yeah. And I, th- I think as someone who you know really grew up on uh, the Gene Kelly era of cinema, of, of musicals, this feels like the next logical step where uh, the plot is advanced, not necessarily through a dance sequence, but through a strip sequence, <laughs> and you get and you sort of get to the next stage via these elaborate elaborate moves, which I, I really like. I, I reckon this is probably the most fun I've had in a film all year. Wow. Goodness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was stripping during the film. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the most, I think I was the film I was most surprised to enjoy. Yeah. For mm. sure, yeah. Well, to the uh, thematically appropriate uh, women, he's undressed. Uh, <laughs> it's not 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 another film about strippers, but it's a uh, new documentary from Julian uh, Armstrong about Ori Kelly, uh, the Australian costume designer who uh, went to Hollywood during its golden age, and for the most part thrived there. There are a few uh, a few dips, but you know, even a few road bumps, a bunch of Oscars, and you know, worked on some extraordinary films and. Uh, 
Yeah, this is this is a really fascinating docker. I think it's got a great sense of humour, and I, I really enjoyed this film. Yeah, yeah, I, I I did too. I think that she she found a very interesting way of approaching it, of of having um, you know a documentary that was quite dramatic in its substance as well. Mm. So that so she had someone playing Ori Kelly, and and she had various sort of mysteries that she withheld in in, in various ways throughout. And I thought that was quite an interesting approach. I think maybe the only thing. It, I, reservation I have is that there's certainly there's just the actual nature of what he did mm. is kind of glossed over a bit. It's 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 there's something about the the exact kind of nature of what of a costume designer and and, and she's someone who obviously knows a great deal about costume mm. design herself as a drama director. And there's just even though she has some really interesting people talking about what he did and and his life, that there, there was some elements of, of the actual art that I still would have liked. Do you to mean have like seen. what is it? What did he yeah. specifically do that made him I, so? The, yeah. the specific, the I guess so. Yeah, the specific the and process. Just the process. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. I think I, that was what I I found was missing. Um, and and I think that I would have liked a little bit more of that. And, and that even though there's some specific costumes that are talked about in very interesting ways, and I hadn't realised, even though I knew about the famous Jezebel dress, the, the, mm. the black and white film in which a red dress is the mm. key element, I, I, I actually hadn't realised that that was him, even though I knew that right. story very well. Mm. And that was interesting. Yeah, I, I, I would have, could have done a little bit more of, of that. I still think that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I agree, yeah. A, a little bit more insight into what his genius was. I mean, we sort of got the the broad strokes of he connects with his actors and it's all about them, you know, sort of getting out their personality and their take on the character through the costume. And But, yeah, you don't get as much sort of philosophy as to what this does for a costume, what this does to this. Within what, the film yeah. itself. Yeah, yeah. Having said that, I'm not a costume buff, so I wasn't expecting to get a lot out of this, but actually I did have a lot of fun with it. The framing device of Kelly's POV being dramatised was very cheeky and funny and mm. slightly cutesy at times, but mm. mostly worked. It wound up being quite endearing. I was slightly perturbed by the film's secondary agenda, though. Like, the obviously, the, the primary agenda is the, the career and life of Ori Kelly. The secondary agenda seems to be the outing of a certain major Hollywood movie star once and for all. And if to erase any doubt that anyone might have even had, I don't know if it's as common knowledge as people think. Well, that's I think that's why and that's she what the film seems to be his real name. Yeah, and then you know all, all the film buffs in the audience know who she's talking about, and then it's the stage name that everyone knows. Yeah, I, is that fair though? Like I, I know, like I know he's dead, and I know yeah, that yeah. sort of thing. But you know, he obviously wanted it hidden when he was alive, and this film seems to really go out of its way to go no, no, without a shadow that's of a doubt, yeah. well, he was certainly- gay. Yeah, I think he's he's outed, but he's also made to seem rather cowardly. Mm. I think that's really the thing that he's being criticised for um, and made to seem unsympathetic. Yeah. It's, I think it's probably reasonably widely known. As you say, the film buffs are mitten, yeah. I think you know straight away, in fact. Mm. But, um, but also there is a, there is a gossipy. Story. There's a gossipy element to it. There is. There is. Yeah, but definitely. I think because it's, uh, it's Ari Kelly's story mm. and from his point of view, he had no problem being open and out. And he could never be that because, you know, he was with this big Hollywood star who would refuse to mm. to acknowledge it. So from and that I point under- of view... Yeah, and I understand that obviously this guy was a huge part of Ori Kelly's life mm. and the biography of Ori Kelly does not 
really happen without this person's involvement. And particularly, like, really surprising stuff, like what they like they ran a Thai company when yes, yes. Kelly, no, there's when, some when moved to New York like and that. stuff. It's like, that's amazing. It's like, yeah. I had no idea yeah. that happened. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, as you're right, yeah, I think it's both the – I think the outing might not have bothered me as much if, yeah, he hadn't also been made to seem sort of cowardly and villainous. And that may in, indeed be the truth. But, you know, I'm tipping there was a hell of a lot of pressure to bear on this guy as mm. well as, you know, like yeah. I'm sure that his career would have been, as we've seen, as, as other examples are made in the film, Billy Haynes and so forth, that, you know, his career would have been over in a snap had he shown his yeah. true colours. The, the the film seems to have a very strong secondary agenda to kind of... To, to, to be, give us a bit of a gossipy tease. Of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. of, that, of yeah. that actor. But otherwise, look, I had a lot of fun with it. I really enjoyed it. As you say, great talking heads and... It really captures Kelly's kind of, dare I say, larrikinish point of view. <laughs> yeah, i got to say, just one last thing on this, that I think in the age of Blu-rays and DVDs, you cannot get away with, like, pixelated YouTube mm. clips as representing the films. I think, you know, I, I get frustrated when 24-hour um, news networks too. do that, when they're uh, they're playing a tribute to an actor, like it's like they play some crappy YouTube clip, but when a, a feature film does that, a documentary... Yeah, that's that's not good. And and it sort of stuttered along sometimes too in terms of the image. Mm. Like it had that kind of really bad YouTube, kind of YouTube on dial-up style. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, f I found that really jarring as yeah. well. That's a, yeah, it was a that's... really weird choice. But to the Marvel film du jour, uh, Ant-Man, <laughs> which I know it's not the highest compliment to call a film a palate cleanser, but it's, it's almost as if Marvel anticipating the mass destruction fatigue years ahead of Age of Ultron's release. They knew that in two years they put out this film and people would then be fatigued by destruction. They then decided uh, to follow it up with, um, I really am trying to resist this pun, but a smaller scale Yeah, to film. go smaller. Just, come on, <laughs> just wear smaller. it. Just, okay. <laughs> it, it kind of feels like there's, there's a theme this month, like particularly with Magic Mike, uh, which is um, low stakes. And I kind of like that, even though there is some reference to a weapon that will destroy the whole world, the stakes in Ant-Man are actually quite small. It's all contained within one city mm. and a couple of buildings in that city, and it's all... And, and as a result, you get to go really personal with our protagonist, Paul Rudd's character. Um, Paul Rudd, who, you know, how has he not been an action-leading man up until now? It's so obvious. But I think maybe the fact that he has never been one is, is what makes him so appealing in, in this role. But yeah, he, I think his relationship with his, his family and, you know, this idea of, of a reformed criminal trying... I mean, we see him working at, what is it, Dunkin' Donuts or something? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Uh, Baskin-Robbins or something. Yeah, yeah. Baskin-Robbins. Baskin -Robbins. Yeah, I wonder about Baskin-Robbins felt about their product placement there. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they loved it. Because <laughs> <laughs> they, they certainly... Oh, they, what they did is practically illegal, I would have thought. <laughs> but the fact that he can't... Yeah, that he gets fired when they, they find out about his, his, true, his yeah. criminal past. But, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, for a series that's centred on, you know, billionaires and gods. And even, you know, Captain America has, you know, he's quite relatable at the beginning, but before he becomes a super soldier. But this guy is right right through. He's this, you know, scrappy guy trying to make money and, you know, win his family back. And, yeah. and I really enjoyed uh, their approach with that. And I think Evangeline Lilly is better than she's ever been. I'm so excited to see what they do with her in the series from here on out. Oh, no. Oh, no, just me, just me. No, 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 I'm no, with you. No, but, no, uh, no, 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 no. I thought she was she was a wig to me. Yeah. I just, oh wow! Yeah, just a, I really didn't like her performance particularly, and I yeah I found that 
her character um, bothered me a bit. That, that sort of, I think that they just didn't spend much time with her. She had this mm. quite interesting um, fact that she was working both with and against her father in a sense, but that was never really explored. I mean, I know she's not the central character, but I felt that a lot was happening that we had to take for granted with her. And sure, yeah. I didn't particularly like her performance. I, on um, Michael Douglas, on the other hand, I, mm. I, I always forget how, how good he is at, at small roles, that he can just bring something that yeah. very few actors... He's, he seems to always... He cares a bit about... And he's very good at being both good and bad at the same time. Mm. And I also like that they've brought in such... I mean, just to digress as a comic book geek for a second, I like that they've brought in such a major actor to play that character because Hank Pym is a major part of the Marvel Universe. He's one. Of, he was one of the original Avengers. He's a character that's been, you know... He's a character with 50 years of comic book history and rather than just sort of hire, you know, a, a, a B-list older actor or just sort of a character, I like that they've hired someone of Douglas's gravitas to mm. do it because it's kind of like, that's ah, a nice... Respect for that for that character. He, he was like the original Ant Man. Yes, he? yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Which is always one of my weird little uh, geeky things with the Avengers. It's like, well, if you you've got all the other originals there, why are Hawkeye and Black Widow there and not Ant Man and the Wasp? But I digress. I, I yeah, I enjoyed Lily's performance quite a bit, but I'm a fan of hers in general. I, I I think there is a certain quiet charisma that she has. She seems very at ease within herself, and I always really dig that. I think you're right, Philippa, though, about a lot taken for granted with a lot of the characters. I found that not only with her, but with the villain as well. Yeah, with yeah. With Corey yeah, Stoll's yellow yeah. jacket. Like, there's a line dropped near the end of the film about, um, oh, the, the, it's the pin particles messing with your head, and it's like, when did we introduce that? Mm. And it was right at the beginning, and then they just kind of... Yeah, and it was really in a... Th- not in a screenwriting fashion where you kind of show the gun in the first act and reveal it in the third. It was kind of thrown away in the first act and never really thought about or expanded upon until they suddenly pull out the card. And I felt his trajectory with Doug, with Pim felt very stock standard. Mm. It was the whole, you've passed me over and now I'm getting like, I mean, it's a very comic book thing, I guess. But again, you just sort of take it for granted. It's not really <laughs> organic. I liked this film to a point. I, I, I don't know if it managed the emotional moments as well as it could have. I know I you... actually found it really corny. Same, the, the, yeah. The, 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 the father-daughter stuff with, with Pim and Hope is more like, that's a more like a, a sort of a mentor yeah. thing, really, more than anything else, um, even though there's obviously she's also kind of holding a grudge about the death of her mother as well. And mm. I mean, dead mothers, let's face it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what's, what's an adventure without at least one dead, dead mother? mother. <laughs> um, and then on the other hand, then there's poor old Judy Greer playing, uh, you know. Mother number eight mother, for uh, Mother on the side again, yeah. yeah. And I think she's she's got another role coming up soon. Is she's it? had a few this year. Yeah. Like she's in Jurassic, Jurassic World. World yeah. think, Tomorrowland. Yeah, 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 no, no, that's right. Um, but is it repetition or juxtaposition? Because I think they, they do try to parallel the... Uh, sorry, you're talking about pigment the, hope. Yeah, no, the, the whole, the whole, and then, the, the whole father daughter. Thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I the, thought they were, they were trying to draw a deliberate. You know, don't do what I did and push your daughter away to to protect her. You know. Yeah, I just felt it was all too corny, hokey to work. Yeah. Like it, it felt really heavy hand, and I I hate to do this, and I, and I know you're going to hate this, okay. but Edgar Wright wouldn't have gone there. Ah. No, no, no. I was that was I've been I've been he, waiting to. I mean, I wonder. Yeah. I really wish we knew. I mean, has anyone yeah. released the script anywhere? Or I, that's what I'm hoping. I, yeah. I was asking my friends that same question yeah. after the film. Do you have the script? Nobody does. Yeah. It's weird in this day and age. See, I, I I adore Edgar Wright. Like he, he's one of my favorite working filmmakers, but. I don't know, like, we, I, I think there, there was a, certainly a tendency to say, you know, 
Man, all, all the things I loved in that film were, were, were no, the rights and the things. I, I think a lot think... of the inventive action is totally as as Edgar Wright. Like a lot of those action scenes smacked of his style, and sure. the, and that great stuff. The great stuff with Michael Pena, who yes. is one of the secret weapons of the film, I think. His right. his uh, little you know he's Story. telling the stories with the digressions and it's like hey I met with this person and then they talked to this person and then, and then she told him about this guy and it's and then sort of wishing from yeah, one yeah. person to the other and it's that's very Edgar Wright as well so I think we got a little bit of what the Edgar Wright Ant Man would have looked like mm. in there I have to say too the this is the first film where the references to other things bothered me. Mm. Like that bit where he sort of goes, I think we should call the Avengers, like really stuck out like a sword. That does bar. fall a bit flat, doesn't and it? There's, and there's another moment as well that, that also felt, oh, that when Darren Cross is talking about the suit and mentions Tales to Astonish, it's like, oh, really? Mm. Like it's, it, it's starting to kind of grate a little bit. And I feel like, too, with a film with this much comedy talent writing it, I thought it really should have been funnier. Mm. Oh, look, I will say, in the end, though, I did, as, my, as my, in many issues as I have with it, I actually did enjoy it. Like the action... The, the action scenes are pretty great. The use of 3D is pretty great. Mm. And the cast are wonderful. And uh, in the end, I kind of came out going, you know what, it's not very tight. It's very shaggy as a, as a script. I think it's the shaggiest and hokiest Marvel we've seen in a while, but I still had fun. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, I think that, that it was something about the, the combination of large and small. <laughs> I thought they, they did really fun things with scale. Mm. And as you can, I, that's the beauty of it. Although I, I must admit there was that little promo for the miniature soldiers, how cool they could be. I, th- I thought that was great, actually. I thought yeah. I'd like to see that, that little, I'd like to see a whole film about those little tiny <laughs> soldiers and surveillance guys. I thought that was really cute. I, that was, that was a highlight was, of the yeah, film, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, but yeah, I think there's, there's, there's what you were saying before, Lee, about the fact that it's kind of, yeah, the, the universe isn't at stake once, you know, city blocks weren't destroyed. There, there was something about the sort of small and scale and the lightheartedness of it, which again made me sort of disappointed with the, the, the corniness of the, the father-daughter stuff. Mm. Um, but also I think the other thing I, I just loved too was the, uh, that confrontation with in the with in the children's in her daughter's bedroom oh, yes. with the the train the, the set, train set. Oh. that that was that was yes. kind of like wearing its sort of movie connections thing very quite lightly but also really mm. pushing it and it was really funny and I think I, I'm not often glad to see Thomas the Tank Engine on screen. <laughs> on that occasion, I, it was fun. Yeah, I, I I don't know where they're going to go with it now though because I think actually going back to your point about when they introduced. Falcon, that was really mm. clunky. Because why don't they call the Avengers? It, it really did feel like a very strange kind of, why, why would you? Oh, yes. Mm. You didn't quite, it, it felt like the world of the film was so different. And so I was sort of anxious about how they, what they're going to do with him next. Mm. Well, that leads us to our next segment. Turn <laughs> up music. At the music sound, turn the page. So for our second segment, we're going to address something we've wanted to address for a little while now. For a couple of years longer than we've been running, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been up and about, steadily kind of creating a presence in the cinematic firmament and becoming more and more ever-present and productive and is now kind of possibly changing the industry in a lot of ways, in the way that Marvel have set forth a blueprint of, of franchising, of running tentpole kind of blockbusters, I think is it's fair to say the ripples of the Marvel method are being felt throughout 
Hollywood and beyond. Mm. And we just kind of wanted to have a bit of a discussion about that. Yeah, I've been quite keen to talk about this because I think there is a general sense uh, that it's a cynical money-making exercise. And I think people forget that it was a really risky venture that big studios actually avoided in the beginning. You know, look at how long it took Warner Brothers to even consider putting Superman and Batman together. You know, nobody wanted to sort of uh, have the franchises touch each other. It seemed uh, like too big a thing. But I honestly think what Marvel is doing is is the biggest effect on, on mainstream cinema since Jaws came out and created the summer blockbuster. I don't think we've seen such a, a radical shift in the types of films that are getting made by Hollywood uh, since then. And I, I, I honestly think that it's it at least partly story-driven by these guys who have, you know, I'm not a comic book reader, but these are guys who have grown up reading the Marvel comics and how Spider-Man tried to join the Fantastic Four and you know, X-Men would cross over with, with whatever else. And they wanted to see that on a bigger scale. Wanted to give the fans the interconnectivity they're used to from comic books. Sure. and mm. But I think because, you know, comic books are, are relatively niche and the mainstream isn't into that, that, that was a big risk. And mm. if one of these films had collapsed, the whole thing would have come crumbling down. And, but even, um, even The Incredible Hulk did well. People seem to remember that as a flop, but it actually did make money. And I think it proved that mainstream audiences were willing to follow a narrative that incorporated not just multiple films, but multiple interconnecting franchises, which is extraordinary in itself. And Why is it so surprising, though? I mean, I, I, I think, I, yeah, that it, it, it took Hollywood a really long time to do it. Mm. And it was, I suppose, a risky thing to do. But given that, yeah, the comic books did it, mm. and given that, there are all sort. There are you know other examples where you can do that kind of. But was thing. there? I don't think there's ever been any proof that like the the mainstream audience, people who don't read comic books, would follow a story from not just film to sequel to sequel, but what's happening in the Iron Man and what happened in Thor and how did this these all connect in the Avengers and then this guy comes in over there. You know, we're we're, we're at least ten films deep now. I think mm, twelve. Twelve films deep, and people have been following it fairly closely. I don't think there was a blueprint to prove to the studios at least that people would be willing to do that and even I think a lot of comic book fans were even cynical that movie audiences would be willing to follow that. In, um, do you think, is it because of the complexity? Because obviously the, the sequel uh, scenario is yeah. reasonably common. We, we, you know, we've, we've seen you know, one film after another. I think th there's that straight line but, yes. um, but I think when you watch Iron Man 3 you know, that doesn't make sense if you've just seen Iron Man 2. You have to have seen The Avengers, mm. and that doesn't make sense unless you've seen Captain America. And so it's, and, it's not such a straight line, I don't think. And I have seen a little audience pushback from that. Like, people do get annoyed at Age of Ultron because it's like, oh, this doesn't feel like its own... Uh, like, to me, I, th I thought it felt fine as a standalone story, but I've, I've ran into people who feel like, oh, it feels like it's constantly paying homage to Iron Man, to Captain... and, like, to these other mm. series, and I have to have seen this to get who this is. And... Which is a very comic book conceit. But but then I argue, well, with sequels, like, do you watch Lethal Weapon 3 and expect to know who everyone is? Do you, do you watch <laughs> Harry Potter Part 7, Part 1, and expect to know where everyone is and who everyone is and who's this guy who was in film number two? Like, it's a pretty common deal. Like, if, yeah. you, if you're going to drop in halfway through a series, expect to be left behind a little mm. bit. <laughs> I think 
what it's doing for Marvel. Because obviously for studios now, so it's got studios looking at every one of their properties and thinking, what could we do the Marvel treatment with? And already we've seen Universal <laughs> pull their monsters out of the dungeon again. And now we've got Dracula Untold, which is meant to start a whole thing. And we're getting Frankenstein film and we're getting all these others. And Star Wars are doing it in a big, bad way now. We're getting it, Rebel Heist movies and a Boba Fett movie. As they're not well willing, as the yeah, they're not willing to just films. do sequels. They want the spin-offs as well. Like mm. there's a room full of writers currently trying to figure out how to not just make Transformers 5 and 6, but also spin-off Transformers films. Guy Ritchie has made a King Arthur film that's meant to kick off, a, I think, a Lancelot film and a, a Merlin film that will lead to the Knights of the Round Table franchise film down the track. Even Sony, who just had Spider-Man, were trying to do that with Spider-Man. They were trying to make films that fit in between the Spider-Man sequels. There was the Sinister Six movie with all the villains. There was going to be an Aunt May spin-off they were talking about at one point. That's how... That's how much they all want not just the sequels but the spin-offs. They want the interconnected universe because that's the next big thing. And it's been really interesting to see how Marvel doing it so well because I think it's driven by, you know, I mean, there's a lot of cynical stuff you can say about Marvel and I wouldn't disagree with, with a lot of it. Um, I think there is absolutely a fatigue that's setting in and there's clearly a house style that's driven away filmmakers like Edgar Wright and Ava DuVernay. But I think it's being driven by story in a way that a business grad film exec who says, give me 10 films out of that one idea, you know, that we're not quite getting from these other films. But it's interesting that every other studio sort of doesn't quite get what's making the Marvel model so successful. Because I think, you know, despite the fatigue that's setting in, there were reports from the Ant-Man screenings of people cheering at that second post credit scene, you know, the, the one mm -hmm. right at the very end, which... Is extraordinary to me. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I found it intriguing and interesting. Yeah, but cheer people were cheering because they love these characters. And I think there's a love out there that, that I think, you know, we film critics who see everything and get a bit fatigued by it all, or people who don't even go to these films and just see the ads on buses and just think, my God, it's everywhere. It's so all-consuming. And I think that in between the, those two polars is the is the audience that, that is still going to see these films and still really enjoying them. I do have a theory about why this is happening now. And I think that, you know, blockbusters are all about up upping the scale. Certainly for the last 20 years, at least, it's all been about what's the next big thing. You know, that Independence Day with the shot of the White House blowing up really kicked off this sort of arms race of special effects. And we've got to a point where we're so over the spectacle where we see cities blowing up as a matter of course, you know, in TV commercials, in TV shows, let alone films. And the next stage of upping the scale is on this epic storytelling level where these last five films you saw are all going to pay off on in this film and of course you can be cynical about that which is fair enough but I think that it's it's upping the scale in narrative rather than CGI mm. and that's why this is happening now there is a danger to, though I was reading something the other day it's like it's become we've become this culture about what's happening next mm. And it's yep. not so much this, well, let's let's look at the film we have on our plate right now. It's always like, what does this film mean for what's coming? Yes. And everything's is always looking forward and not actually living in the moment of the narrative that we're being told. Mm. And I think that that's a little bit of a danger with this model. It's sort of like, mm -hmm. oh, what's this going to do for number two and number three? And what's going to, but yeah, but what happens when you get to the last one? What then? Yeah. You know, it's like you've got to maximize the moment. I enjoy Marvel movies, so I'm mm -hmm. playing a little bit of devil's advocate here. But what about... 
the story you're telling now? What yes. about that? Look, I, I'm really enjoying the Marvel films and I'm enjoying the model that they've set up and the, the way in which they've woven this narrative. But I'm certainly not advocating this model as something everyone should take on. And I'm sort of... <laughs> well, I don't too know, bad, because Hollywood are. <laughs> well, that's it. And I find that yeah. fascinating that we're, we're in this age where we are going to see one idea spin off into not just multiple sequels, but multiple spin-offs and interconnected universes coming out the wazoo. And love it or hate it, I think this evolution is really, really interesting. So, Philippa, please tell us whom have you picked for your... Hellas for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month. The fabulous Anya's father. Wonderful. The, uh, the French... Oh, okay, now, is she French New Wave? Because she's part of the left bank cinema, and I've heard people say that's different from the French New Wave, and others say it's part of the... It's like a subset of the French New Wave. I think uh, she. I think she's someone who's part of everything. Quite honestly, mm. that's what I love about her. She has relationships across almost every filmmaking area you can find. Like she's a good buddy of Harrison Ford, yeah, which that. is great. Yeah, yeah. Anna Renee helped yeah. her edit her first film. Goddard helped her get her um, second film made. He, he and acted, and he, and he acted short, in yeah. it. He <laughs> and took Anna off the glasses. Yeah, yeah. He, he did his Buster Keaton <laughs> yeah. for, for her. Yeah, I think she she's someone who connects with almost everything, and that's one of the things I love about her as a person because yeah. she's very, a very visible figure in the filmmaking world and, and in, you know, increasingly in her own films, but she really crosses a, a lot of boundaries and she's a woman who connects things and so I think she's actually and I think she's probably suffered a little in in that way because she is a little bit hard to pin down and mm. reduce to one thing and it almost bothers me in a way that people say oh she invented the new wave which is yes of course is true in a way she her first film La Pointe Courte has a lot of the qualities but it's almost like that's not why she's interesting. It's, yeah. it's mm. an interesting thing about her. Mm. Yeah, for but, me, it kickstarts yeah, what Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really good point because, you know, we all know that the new wave doesn't feature a lot of women no. directors. Mm. And that there she was. And, and she was one among equals there. And her husband, Jacques Demy, a figure on, on the margins in a way, mm. someone who you can't pin down to a particular style of filmmaking. You can't categorise him as easily. But, yeah, I think that's the thing about Anya. What I, one of the many things I love about Anya's Varda is how protein she is and how, you know, she's she's very expansive and very ambitious, but also, like, quite modest and confined in her approach to things as well. And, and there's so many different kinds of filmmaking mm. in her work. The thing I love about her is she seems to take art extremely seriously but doesn't take herself seriously. She's got mm. a wonderful sense of humour, mm. but she... Yeah, no, she she knows that she's interested in the value of things and mm. she's yeah, I think that's that's right. Yeah. No, I'm kind of amazed she's not the big name that got our Truffaut because, uh, mm. you know, I mean, if you look at a film like uh, Cleo from 5 to 7 and Le Bonheur and you know there there is stuff in both of those films that is so revolutionary even today. Little elements of camera movement and editing and just such unconventional elements that would st would feel fresh even today. Mm. And she was, yeah, years ahead of her. Close time. to subjective, uh, real-time storytelling in Cleo from mm. 5 to 7. She's always willing to play with with narrative. I think it's probably because she wasn't as aggressively self-promotional as yeah. a Godard. You know, also she she owns everything. Yeah, and I think that's a price you pay sometimes. Mm. Is that if you want to keep, you know, own the rights to everything and preserve your integrity and your final cut, then it's harder to to get the money to make the films you want to make, and maybe people aren't as interested in promoting you. I think it's a compromise that you probably make. Mm. But mm. yeah, no, I I do think that she. 
she deserves to be more widely known than she is. I think that, you know, she's much loved and appreciated in certain circles, but maybe not the the legendary figure that she should be. Mm. Yeah. No, absolutely not. I love that LaPointe La Court is almost a mission statement for the career to follow, that it's it's both a documentary and an intimate drama. Yes. And they dovetail with each other constantly and blur and separate, and that almost sets the tone for everything to follow, as and, well yeah. as creating the French New Wave style. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a, one of the many interesting things about her is that she understands that and does it in such a complicated way, always in the interest of the story. So, I mean, Vagabond, which is is a film like that, which mm. has a, a sort of a documentary approach in a way because it's about um, looking back and finding out what happened to a young woman whom we see you know, being dead, dragged dead out of a ditch at the beginning. That was her most successful film, I think. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, successful yeah. in terms of audience yes. response. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. There, there, was, there was a film, uh, a documentaire, uh, that she made in, in 81. Yeah, it's a wonderful mm. film about mm. a, a French mother and son living in America. And there was a moment in that where I could not tell it, until I saw <gasps> Beaches of Agnes later and she explains it. But yeah, what, yeah, the argument. And you're like, is this... Is this real or is this staged? And it feels so real, but then the staged part, the scripted part enters the documenting and uh, reality and narrative are just merged in, in a way that is just so... You know, when you hear the process later, you hear how she did... She had her actress just walk through the frame during this While argument. While this man and woman were having an actual stand-up argument. And she actually asked yeah. them too. She did ask of, Which is a sort of thing I think that she, yeah, she would. Yeah. It's kind of a thing that, that, that the French, it's a punning title because documenteur is a liar oh, in French. Right. So documenteur yeah. is both a, is a documenter and a liar so yeah. at the same time. I, her puns are another giveaway <laughs> to, <laughs> to um, the fact that she is, often is doing two different things at once. And I think mm. punning's part of that sensibility. But yeah, I think yeah, the way you you wrote about the way she merges reality and fiction. She obviously plans things out very carefully. Like you can see that in even in Beaches of Agnes in those opening scenes where she's placing the mirrors and she's very very careful mm. about where they go because she has a plan in her head, but she presents herself as living in the moment, which she I think mm. she is as well. She will film anything that takes her interest and one of her best works is The Gleaners and I, a documentary she made in 2000 about people who sort of go through fields to pick up potatoes or fruit that has been left and then people in cities who go through the trash. And it's all about uh, repurposing things that others discard, which is almost her approach to filmmaking. She will include things that no other filmmaker would put in. In The Gleaners and I, she says, it's wonderful that I can make this film because I have this new digital camera. And then she films her hand and then she films the, the manual of the digital camera she's using, you know, she loves herself catching trucks on the highway. That's well, they just beautiful put it outside. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. But I think, and I think that's that's absolutely right. Yeah. But I think she 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 takes pleasure in the moment. But she knew what she was doing when she was doing that, mm-hmm. and she she was celebrating this technology which liberated her. Yeah. You know, she did some fascinating things with it, and absolutely, she's a great planner. When she, ta- I think she talks about it in the beaches of Agnes how the tracking shots in Vagabond yes. are incredibly carefully planned, and by the same token. She loves to find faces and, mm-hmm. and I mean, she, she, she often has non-actors in films and she loves looking at their faces and that goes back all the way back to La Pointe Court, which, mm, which yeah. uh, she loves locations too. I mean, the La Pointe Court was a, a place where she sp- spent part of her childhood 
um, so she, sort of location landscape, both very important to her. Mm. The static is important to her. She had a fine arts background, but she loves movement as well. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, she mm. she's a great reconciler of opposites, and I think that's another thing about her that yeah. I really love. Yeah, as you say, like Vagabond's a perfect example of that. You've got this film that feels so documentary and then she reveals that the stories are all separated by these 13 left-to-right, very specific right, tracking right shots. Left, right, yeah, 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 tracking shots. Yeah, mm. yeah. Cleo from 5 to 7 is a genuine masterpiece. Mm. Let me just talk about that for a second. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. She made LaPointe Court, uh, LaPointe Court in 1955 and then, well, that was released in 55, and then a few shorts after that and was sort of having trouble getting a, a second feature up until the story goes that financiers were seeing how much money Godard and Truffaut's films were making mm. and were going to the members of the then French New Wave and saying, hey, do you know any other people like you that make films for nothing and can make us a bundle? And they went to Jacques Demy, who was her husband, and he said, well, I don't have a guy for you, but I got a girl. Because he made Lola with Lola yes. that way, that's right. Mm. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, because he got referred by Godard mm. and then <laughs> Demi referred to, to Varda and she got the chance to make Cleo from 5 to 7 in 1962. And it's beautiful, it's funny, it's deeply elegiac. Again, it's a difficult film to pin down, but it's just wonderful. It just kind of leaves you with this feeling. This, this, um, that's right. I mean, it's this, and it is almost literally what it says. It's a character who that we follow for, the, for through that period of time, almost in real time, and there are clocks everywhere mm. to show us what time it is at various times. And, and Cleo, who, who seems like a slightly unsympathetic character, a sort of rather frivolous woman, but she's waiting to find out a fairly crucial piece of information about her life. But so much happens around mm. that that process of waiting. And it's so inventive in the way she films it. Mm. I was in Paris when they launched the DVD of Cleo at the Cinematheque and there's a wonderful sort of little box they put out with Sompe cartoons and um, lots of extras and things like that. And Corinne Marchand, who plays... Um, uh, Cleo, Cleo was 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 there, and they mm. had a sort of Q and A and things like that. And because one other thing I, I do love about Agnes too is she's very careful about bringing her films back and mm. the films of Jacques Demy as well. And so she does these wonderful DVD releases with so much. She calls them the les boni, the bonuses, and, yeah. and which is her special little word for it. And and so there's these amazing bonuses you get with all of her films now. And she shows you. She actually takes you for a trip round Paris to to all the different locations. There's mm. a little bonus like that. Oh, wonderful. But, um, yeah, yeah, no, she, she's, she's embraced new technology, not just with things like her little camera in The Gleaners and I, but, yeah, with, with all it can do to, to add things to, to the value of her, her films when she puts them out again. Even little things like uh, putting in hip-hop tracks. You, know, you wouldn't yes. think a, a filmmaker from the 50s and 60s would be doing that, but she's, she does it in such a, an uncynical way. You, you, know? you get the feeling she heard it. Oh, I like that. That would really fit. There. All right, let's do that. Like, yeah. yeah, she's such a magpie in that regard. Yeah, yeah. 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 And also we've got, got to say that uh, she was such a groundbreaker in terms of cat videos. Uh, oh, God. Decades before YouTube. The obsession with cats. Cats are in nearly all of her films. LaPointe that... Court has cats in it. Yeah, like, LaPointe Court. Right from day one. Boom. Clay, Cleo, all the kittens running around yeah. her apartment. In... Yeah, it's just, it, it's a nice touch. And in her documentaries as well, the ways cats hanging around. It's... And her company, Sineta Maris, has her cat yes, exactly. as a logo. Yeah. And, and Did short... she make a short film that was an homage to a cat? 
Yes, yeah. In the early two yeah. thousands, yeah. there was yeah. one. That, yeah, I think that that's the one that's where the, the, the yeah. lion statue is replaced by her <laughs> by cat. Z- by Zbugu, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Beautiful, but um, yeah, she's. I mean, she was wonderful with actors, and she worked with some great actors. But in a film like Le Bonheur in in, in sixty five, which is this really beautiful observational film about a family, and the family is played by a real family. I was, uh, you know, halfway through, I was thinking, God, these kids are incredible. You know, you've got three-year-olds who are calling, you know, mama, papa, Mm. and they're so funny and natural. And of course it's because she's got a real family playing themselves, but doesn't let that realism get in the way of this narrative that she wants to tell. Mm. And I think that's, yeah, another example of merging. Well, that's that's, that's that sort of documentary fiction. Yeah. 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 I mean, that that is an interesting film. It's, it's, I think it's still quite a shocking film in a way. Yeah, um, yeah. It certainly caused a commotion at the time, I gather. Did it? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I had, a sli- I had a little bit of an issue with the last 10 minutes or so, like after the climactic event. Yes. So like, like, maybe a bit hard to talk about it. As yeah, well, as yeah, in a way, you don't want to give things but, away. But, but, but it is, I mean, it's a story about what looks like the perfect family. As you say, they're so relaxed together. It's mm. a, the husband's a carpenter, the wife's a dressmaker. It's shot in these beautiful, I mean, really heightened this colour that where that's really emphasised by the transitions where you see these primary colour shots in between. At the very beginning you have these picture, images of sunflowers and there's a sort of, a, one of them, there's a kind of an insect crawling over it. It's mm-hmm. like at the heart of all this happiness, there's something there that it's not what you think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And I think people respond to it in really different ways. They see and I, it's one of its strengths for me is that you can interpret it in, in very many different ways. And I know some people, I've seen it criticised as an anti-feminist film, for example, mm. which I, which puzzles me. Yeah, it's, yeah, hard, it's hard to make that argument when that. you see a short yeah. film, uh, Women's Reply, which I think she made in the 70s, which is, you know, just a, an unabashed feminist. Oh, one screen. sings, the other doesn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Feminist Yeah, that's yeah. right, absolutely. Yeah, I, think, I think she certainly found herself increasingly moving towards mm. overt feminism. Um, I think she was feminist without necessarily naming it to begin with. But, but you know, I think, no, I think it's, it's a very powerful but disturbing film. The design of it, the music, you've got the, 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 the mm. Mozart, yeah. building up this sort of lyrical, simple evocation of what what maybe is happiness but turns out to, to work in a certain way for some people and not for others. Yeah. I, I find it a deeply unsettling film. Yeah. But, um, like men are just extremely adaptable. <laughs> and, yeah. Now, can we just talk for a second about the creatures? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What a bizarre little thing that is. Because, and I think that's in the Beaches of Agnes, isn't it? The strips of film in that room. Yes. That's actually the creatures. That's yeah. the film that no one wanted to see. <laughs> yeah. She yeah. turns it into a little hut. It's yeah. Tough. Yeah. Made, made up out of it. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's it's a weird film. I mean, I don't stepping know. Varda stepping into science fiction. Yeah. Well, it starts off with this bright. car crash, and then you sort of think it's an M. Night Shyamalan sort of situation <laughs> where he's sort of in this house and he's got this wife who doesn't speak, and you sort of think, is she dead? Like, what's going on? And then he meets this, he starts writing a story about a guy who has the power to control anybody for a minute, and then actually meets the person who can do this, and mm. then plays him in a chess game in order to defer, determine the fates of the people in the town. Mm. And it is just, yeah, I was just got like gobsmacked that it came from. It, it, it doesn't, yeah it's, yeah. it's completely at odds with, with yeah, everything else she's done in a way, and it's very rarely seen. But the um, should be seen more, though. I think it, it was really interesting. Well, it's that film in Lion's Love in 69, mm. which is just, uh, I feel like it's her making films to see what type of film she wants to make. Mm. Like, okay, I've made, you know, the start of my career, now who am I going to be as a filmmaker? And 
Because, of course, like in the 60s, when France was kind of tearing itself apart, she yeah. was in California. Yeah. And, and Documenting um, the Black Panthers. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah, she made that short film about the Black Panthers, mm. and Lion's Love is sort of centred around the assassination of RFK. And I um, feel like that happened as, a, as they were shooting, though. I feel like she'd started with something else, yeah. and yes, then the RFK yeah. thing, and the, I think, and the MLK I think she thing fu- happened. I think yeah, she yeah. fudges the, 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 the Kennedy stuff to get yeah. it in to make it look like it happened. Yeah. And she, she was there because Jacques Demy got a, the chance to go there. Mm. He was making model shop for Columbia. And, yeah, which was to star Harrison Ford. Mm. But they didn't think he was bankable. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, give up acting, son. Uh, you haven't got it. So they got uh, Gary Lockwood. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> but, but yeah, this I, I really enjoyed Lion's Love. Like, it's very yeah. shape, Like it's very of the time. And yeah. It's very shapeless and very kind of... But it's also the blurring of documentary and fiction. Mm. And it's also really intriguing and in looking at the, that sort of contrast between the peace and love era and what was sort of beginning to occur and those sort of values. And I, I think getting her perspective on it is a pretty amazing document. Yeah. yeah. Again, it's not quite what you would have expected, but she's in America and she looks around her and she meets people. But then she also, in America, makes films about quite different things as well. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think she's, again, it's part of her ability as a, as a connector yeah. is, is really interesting there. And Shirley Clark, yeah, as yes. well, <laughs> which which was great because I love her films. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was great to see her playing an Agnes Varda um, substitute, mm, and mm. Um, who then Varda actually steps in the film when she can't play a, a certain scene. Yeah, she, that's hilarious. She's like, and yeah. it, it also brings up something which I guess we've maybe risk making her sound a bit happy because, of mm. course, there's. I mean, death is a really strong theme in many of her films. That 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 it's that it's there as a spectre, mm. yeah, in a quite powerful way. But in a way that somehow it never overwhelms, but it's always there. Well, it becomes more potent as Jacques Demy becomes sick and, yes. and dies in I think the early nineties, nineteen ninety, nineteen ninety, and and you see it like even in uh, in Beaches of Agnes, she's quite. I mean, she's a very ha- happy character, and then when she starts to talk about Jacques, you know, she's still quite upset. And mm-hmm. I think they had one of the great love stories. You know, they were obviously so devoted to one another, and there's a hint that they separated for a while and then came back together in her documentary, but there's not a lot of information out yeah. there about that. But she made, she made a documentary about him. She made a biopic about his early well, life. Well, it's interesting. It's like the five years from basically when she learned, well, they learned that he was going to die mm. to like five years after he died. She makes three films, and they're all in some way about him. Yeah, there's uh, Jacquot de Nantes, which is uh, about his about Jacques Demy's childhood yep. and um, growing up to be the filmmaker that he becomes. There's the universe of Jacques Demy, which is a tra- travelogue through his career. Yep. I'm blanking on the other one. A hundred and one nights. No, 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 no. Yeah, there is another. Um, there is another one. Mm. I'm blanking on what it is, but yeah, but there's. It seems like for a while there, she's consumed with the mem- with the memory of Jacques. Oh, the young girls turned twenty five. Yes, is yes. thank you. Yes, yes. 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 which is the twenty fifth anniversary of um, the young girls of Russia, of course. Yeah, yeah. 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 and yeah, and, and yeah, she is keeping his memory alive and sort of cementing his place in cinema because she's so devoted to him. And it was it's really quite touching to see her. Yeah, make yeah. Films about him. I've been to her house once, yeah. which I yeah, wow. which was a great sort of pleasures of my life was interviewing her in her house in Rue Daguerre, where she's I think she bought it and. 
1951 or something, and she's been there ever since. Wow. And then across the road is um, Cine Tamaris, which is the, the company. And she and that's the, where they – one of the things they do, it's there's an edit suite there and offices, but there's also – But not the film, on the beach, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> the films of Agnes Varda and the films of Jacques Demy are sort of on sale there. And, and she's she, his legacy is really important to her still, mm. yeah. Yeah. And, yes, their creative partnership sort of separately and together. I think, again, there's in Beaches of Agnes, I think, has the shots of the two of them sort of working simultaneously on either I side of the that. courtyard. Yeah. yeah. He's with Legrand composing yeah. and she's shooting with Noiré. Uh, yeah, yeah, in the in the in the yeah. house. I thought that was wonderful. Mm. And again, yeah, you get so inspired watching these two creative people yes. in the yeah same space. Um, I just wanted to jump back to a couple of films. Yes. Um, in in the late eighties, she made Kung Fu Master in nineteen eighty seven. I love that she made a film called Kung Fu yeah, Master, yeah, oh, which no, is which great, is the right? most misleading title in the history of cinema. <laughs> and it's one of, it's such an amazing film because it's which came first? <laughs> what Jane V for Jane for, by Agnes. B yeah. or Kung Fu Master because the intimation seems to be that Kung Fu Master spun off her conversations with Jane Birkin. It's yeah, yeah and you can't tell like what's what's fiction, what's reality because mm, they mm. came out at the same time. I think they came out like a week apart. And we should say France. Jane B for Agnes V is uh, like almost a documentary about Jane Birkin, her process and her hanging out with Agnes Varda and talking about this film she wants to make. And part of it seems to be shot at the same time as Kung Fu Master. There are scenes that are, she's wearing the same costume and they're in the same location. So I have a feeling they were at least partially simultaneous. Yeah, 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 but yeah I'm sure that's right. Yeah, Kung Fu Master, such an overlooked film. Like It's, it's co-written by and starring Jane Birkin. And her teenage daughter, Charlotte Gainsborough. And, and yeah. the boy is her Mathieu own son, Demi. Mathieu Demi, who yeah. I love. Between Documenter and that and 101 Nights, I think he's, he's wonderful. A, yeah, yeah. No, he's, a, he's a lovely It's actor. about a middle-aged woman becoming infatuated with a teenage boy, like a really young teenage yeah, boy. slightly uh, uncomfortable, oh, it's dare so I say. Oh, fearless, though. Yeah, no, there's some, there's some way in which it's so kind of taboo and yet it seems to have a sort of yeah the fearless kind of openness that it's not what you think it's going to be yeah mm. and it feels subversive because it's also matter of fact mm. i think mm. that's what's so shocking is that yeah. it's all presented so and yeah. even like in her conversations with her mother and stuff it's like oh this happens all the time this is yeah. fine you need to you need to work through this the two of you just go to an island by yourselves yeah <laughs> it's like it's what? extraordinary <laughs> and in that sort of middle period of her career i guess because she's so i think her career is really interestingly bookended she's got that real French New Wave stuff at the beginning and she's got these amazing documentaries at the end and in the middle is this strange experimental period that it's... I mean, this is very much after the fact, mm. looking back and ascribing these periods to her career. But of that peer, middle period, I find uh, yeah, Kung Fu Master is the one that, that spoke to me the most. Wow. See, I've, I'm a big fan of her LA period. I love the affection yeah. she has for Los Angeles and the films that come out of that. Like, documenter just kicked around in my head a little while after watching it. Yeah. Like, it's just something so beautifully um, naturalistic and deeply sad, and yet there's a glimmer of hope there somewhere. It's it's beautiful. The only copy of Murmurs, her documentary about mural, it's, it's mm. essentially about people who create murals in L.A., but it's like this charting of L.A.'s history in terms of race relations. And, yeah, that and was beautiful. The only, the only copy I saw was all her lines weren't, all Varda's narration wasn't subtitled. Yeah. So it was kind of like, I can only follow from the testimonials of the people she interviews. Out, there's a, I think there's a. There is. There's there's a, a, it's about to come out. Version. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, mm. which is coming out. I think August. Quite soon. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that that's all her Californian films in oh, a box. I'd set. love wow. to. I'd love to yeah, get that. Yeah, yeah. I think that that she, yeah, the fact that she. Well, 
she's sort of her, her fine arts background and her background as a photographer. I think really informed her filmmaking because mm. she, she said, and I, you know, I suppose we have to believe it. She saw an incredibly small number of yeah. films before she made La Pointe Courte, and yeah. you know, obviously filmmakers can sometimes mythologise themselves, but I've got no reason to think that's not true. Um, but, but she also point, points, I think, in terms of mythologising herself. There's a moment in Beaches of Agnes that sums up a, a lot of what she does, where. She says uh, to the person filming her, I think I wore this scarf on purpose. I think I wore it on purpose so that it would blow over my face and you'd capture me with the scarf. Other so moments of vanity she'll point out and make fun of herself for, yeah. even if she's not quite sure about them. <laughs> and that is, yeah, she'll always deconstruct herself. Mm. Well, there's mm. a great moment in that where she's looking at all the at the photo exhibition mm. of the, uh, the Avignon Festival. Yeah. And she's saying, I'm proud of these photos. I'm proud of being invited to share these moments and take them interrogating her own vanity and then realizing but what's really getting me here is that it's all about i'm just looking at the dead which again and, that's and right that, in the midst of it's again there's all death always somehow yep. is there mm. in the midst of celebration and joy there's always death somewhere there mm. and has been from the very beginning and that's mm. the other thing it's not just a realization that came with age it's something she no was aware well of. that's what cleo from five mm. to seven is all yeah. about and yeah. la point court if not about death is about the sense of mortality hanging over that relationship mm. and mm. there's a sense of mortality hanging over the town's kind of way of life and its comparison to paris and yeah so it's always always there i feel like jane b for agnes v though is a film that any actress would love a director to make about them yeah it's like you play get to play anything you definitely want we get to talk about you and your life and deconstruct everything and with a lot of what vada does it all of it just seems filled with so much love and mm. so much there's a real lack of judgment which comes back to kung fu master as well absolutely right not a judgment but but clarity and and awareness of contradictions yes. and morality and positions as well. I mean, it's not like she's sort of filming carelessly, no. you know, anything like that. I mean, it's she thinks very deeply about. Mm, yeah, things. true. Yeah. And in the middle of this, we have vagabond, which is weird that it seems to get forgotten in a lot of like in a lot of our discourses because it's just it's such a. It's an extraordinary. It's an incredibly yeah. powerful film. Mm. Homeless, uh, going traveling around France. We don't really know much about her, and we sort of learn about her from interviews with the people she encounters. This sort of quasi doc I mean she never but the quasi documentary side of it is never really explored. I mean mm. it's sort of it's almost like it's natural. It's never it's not like it's a mock mockumentary no. or anything like that. It's a it's just this idea that people think aloud about mm. this woman. Mm. And it's so it's almost like that, even though there's a documentary sort of note to it. And and, and Sandrine Bonaire was Seventeen yes. when she I only realised that afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was so young. And the interviews never tell the whole truth. No, like there was no. their impression of what she's like, and then we see their. And they don't know yeah. she's dead. Mm. They, they never know she's so she's not she's still alive to them. There's actually an interwoven story about the connections between all these characters, yeah. which no one That's knows right. about. It always reminds you, like in Le Bonheur, there's that moment where even though there are two female characters in the film who never meet, but there's one scene where their paths cross yes, at yeah. the market. Yes. And in, there's a similar side of that kind of in, the thing that happens in Vagabond where we know where, where all the connections are. Yeah. And very occasionally a character puts something together, but all of the connections are obvious only to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's such, a, she's such a fascinating character to, well, Simone, Mona, yeah. whoever she is. And so, yeah, so forthright and aggressive obstinate and kind of wanting this sense of freedom but maybe not even really knowing what that means to her and and within that you've got this great dissection of class 
Yeah, it's it's. It's like it's a portrait of of, of a whole society, yes. isn't it? It's, it's never heavy-handed. No, just, you're getting this window into all these lives. Mona's kind of the vehicle for it, and and again, it's not judgmental. No, I don't think. Yeah, she's a spiky character as mm. well. Like she's not mm. the easiest character to warm to, which is again an interesting choice, and it's so incredibly truthful. Now, is it true that uh, she's just announced that I think a short film or, or a project is going to be coming to is it Vienna? Uh, to Venice. Venice. To Venice, Venice sorry. Yes. But is, is it true that Beaches of Agnes is her last feature film, 2008? Well, she has said at the time of its release that this will most likely be her last film. She released it at the age of 80. Yeah. And she has made a television series since, which I love because it's essentially her just going around the world doing what interests her. Yeah. Like, it's like, <laughs> I'm going to go look at some art and talk to some old friends. Follow me with a camera and I'll do it. <laughs> and, and they're fascinating too, yes. those encounters. Yeah. And she does have sort of privileged access. I mean, you know, I, I thought going into Chris Marker's... Insane uh, head. Oh, <laughs> this, like this... televisions upon videos, upon cords. The most cats. messed up working space you could ever hope to see. It, it made me feel so good about myself. <laughs> um, but it was fascinating. And, of course, you know, you don't see him ever well, you, um, because he doesn't work that way. But only, I think it, it's an example of the trust, I think, that, mm. you know, that when their relation, working relationship goes back a long way or their, their contact. Yeah. I didn't realise how reclusive he was in terms of not wanting his image or voice put on Yeah, no, his, his, his avatar. Puts Mally cat- to shame. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> but I th- it's almost the perfect medium is that, that, that her last feature film, The Beaches of Agnes, was about her life and her career. And it puts such a cap on on her work and yet it, she didn't stop working. She was able to keep... It was almost the perfect uh, mix of saying, that's my last feature and that ends my feature career. And she can still make short films. She can and still she make does, TV and, shows. And, yeah. and, and art installations. Art yeah. installations, she's, yeah. done, she's become quite a... Done quite a lot of that too. Mm. Yeah. And he, <laughs> what was she dressed up walking around as a potato? That was the yeah, best. That, yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. Was, yeah. That made me love her more than any other thing I saw. Just <laughs> the sort of stuff she does. Like yeah. She's quite an impish character. She's got such a sense of humour. But yeah, I mean, she's an incredibly outgoing and, and generous and... Yeah. Mm, person who, who kind of feels very comfortable with her place in the world and in yeah. her films, I think. And, and She's so curious. That's yeah. what I yeah. love about yeah. her. Yeah, that, that's it. It's, a, it's an unending curiosity about the world. And, you know, she's so funny and she's so interesting that I, I just, I, I want to hang out with yes. her. You know, I yes. just really want to go to France and just spend, you know, I, I, I'm well, impressed and jealous that... Oh, that I, yeah. yeah. Oh, that. look, I've, my, I've had a... a, a Agnes Varda's cat sitting on my lap. Oh. <laughs> That's no, how I like it. And, and when I did a Skype interview with her in which she was able to kind of say, oh, is that your cat? <laughs> so we had cat-to-cat contact. Which, uh, it's very cool. I think one of the things too, though, is like the the – the after the Gleaners and I, she did that two years after thing. Yep. Where, mm. And I thought that was really interesting too because yeah. she she was prepared, for example, to to there was a character in the Gleaners and I that a lot of people fell in love with, mm. and she let him in this in two years after critique yeah. her film. Oh wow! Yeah, so he he kind of he expresses his because he's quite a um, he's a rigorous man and that's mm. what she admires about him but but some of that was that he didn't feel entirely comfortable with how he's portrayed and she's quite happy to let him mm. have his say and yeah. to see that that's part of her process is is kind of you know, that, that he says being... you shouldn't have put yourself in the film mm. and then she puts him saying that in her film yeah yeah which yeah. is you know just sums her up so mm. well mm. do we do a rap yeah yeah because yeah, we'll i just i just want to sure. say thank you for for um 
I don't know, giving giving me the chance to to talk to you about Agnes Varda and to hear how much you love her too, because um, uh, she's just the best. Oh well, the, thank you. It's been it's been wonderful to like go back and see her early work and discover all of these hidden gems that that aren't household names but should be. These amazing. And, films. But also, yeah, maybe to, to point out to people that that. Um, that she is really good at putting out her work on DVD. There's an awful lot available on DVD. There's an incredible box set that you can get on Amazon for under $200, I think from Amazon UK or Amazon France. Yeah. It's called uh, Tuvada. Like it's like basically, Tuvada. And yeah. It's, yeah, and it's everything. pretty much everything. It's almost everything. Wow. And she's very good about it. I mean, everything she does has English subtitles too. So every, yeah. everyone go order that because yeah. Yeah. Uh, there are a couple of films in there that are worth the entire price of that yeah, set and, alone. And that's the thing. Honestly, this is a filmography I wasn't sure whether I was going to get into and I almost instantly fell in love with it. And it's just consistently interesting and, and, and yeah, thank you so much for introducing it to us. Thank you, Philippa, and we'll see the rest of you next month. Susie, do you know anything about witches? Oh,